Episode 3 of the Searching for Skylab podcast, and I'm back again with Dwight Stephen Bonietsky. Hello, hello, right? Sean. Yes, you said it right. And would you just shush I'm for a little while? I want to hear the music. Music to your ears. Yeah, it's a very right, catchy right. tune. Very catchy tune. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Less, less singing on the podcast, please. We want people to stick around. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, then you better remove the song. <laughs> so, episode 3. Uh, yes. We've had two episodes go up already. Hopefully, people have been listening to it. Hopefully, they're gagging for more. Yeah, well, I hope so. I hope so, too. Yes. Otherwise, why are we doing this? I t- for the fun of it. Just to hear your voice. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, that's, if that's why you're doing it, you, know, it's, uh, you need help. <laughs> yes. So, in this episode, we are going to be talking about the Skylab launch and the problems that they faced. Uh, after the launch... Um, and then also a little later on, lots of problems and uh, things going on and a lot of drama. Yes, a lot of drama, a lot, actually. A lot of drama. A and, lot uh, of drama. Drama, drama, drama. And there a lot of interesting stories about how NASA was able to salvage the mission and, and basically uh, sn- snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. So it's, uh, all of that's coming up. I'm very excited to hear you tell the stories. Uh, but before we do that, we could run through some news about Searching for Skylab, the movie. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff that happened in the last few weeks. Yes, and, yes. We, uh, uh, we put it on, um, online at vimeo.com. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, what, f- f- March? The 5th of March, we officially went online. Uh, those who supported us with Kickstarter already had the file available yeah, like to me. them on the 1st of March, yes. And you haven't like, even like watched me. it like yet, me. have you? Well, I, well, no. I've seen it before. Yes, you uh, saw just, the rough, I need, I need rough to watch the. Yeah, I need to see the finished version. That's uh, and I'm very excited to see the finished version. But I already the version I saw was pretty cool. Well, yes, basically you saw the uh, before the minor minor cosmetic changes, uh, courtesy actually of Jack Lausma, who informed us that some of the film footage had incorrectly been scanned and it was actually mirror imaged. And he said, uh-huh. "Look, I know I filmed the stuff. I, I know exactly how it looked." And, and yeah, sure. so, so we had to change the footage thanks to thanks to Jack Lausma. And he was like, I, "I hope I don't cause problems." I'm like, oh, "Better to know now than yeah. to have this thing go out and." perpetuate the uh, the incorrect myth that can that's how you imagine it, yeah exactly can you imagine the internet backlash oh, there's enough people that were full on into skylab that would uh, have called me up and said yeah, do you realize yeah, sure. i'm like oh no um so that was uh, so that was that went up onto vimeo uh, in the beginning of february it did, it did, and we were very lucky to have uh, a, an article written about us by The Register, which is a UK-based yeah. magazine online. They have approximately 2 million readers, and uh, we definitely noticed an interest in the film after our story went online, and uh, are very thankful to The Register for, for taking interest in, in the film. It would be... Uh, It'd be nice if some of the um, space outlets would uh, would take interest as well. And there's one person who commented on the Register's discussion forum said, I subscribe to a lot of space websites and none of them mention this. I'm like, I wonder why that is. That's very uh, interesting. So I actually wanted to talk to you about that Register uh, article or the Register article. Um, it was a great review, right? I, very I, much uh, so. 
the, the title says it all. It's uh, searching for Skylab. Even the most casual astro nerd will revel in this respectful elegy to unsung space history. That's a very good title. It is. It is very much so. And that's exactly what we were doing. We were paying tribute yeah. to a forgotten era of NASA's history. Yeah, and that's that's the kind of thing that me as someone who who's not a space fundy or very knowledgeable about space travel, uh, I could sit down and watch it and, and enjoy it. I actually learned tons about not just Skylab but just in general uh, space travel. Well, cool. So, that's that we have fulfilled our objective. If that's what you felt when you were watching the film, yeah. So they go on to say they give it a lot of good uh, positive feedback and uh, talk about your use of voiceovers and. Uh, a lot of, a uh, lot of, uh, a little bit of uh, information about the crew members who passed away after you'd uh, interviewed them. So it's it's a great rundown. Uh, there was one part of the <laughs> the report that that did catch my eye, Dwight, and it was uh, the paragraph that went that started, and a, par- a paragraph that starts like this can never be good. However, there are some downsides. Oh. Those. Yeah, those used to the orchestral groanings of James Horner's Apollo 13 soundtrack might find the background music a little too reminiscent of a, wait for it, NASA museum. And this is the fa- my, my favorite part because, of course, my band, Tencent Janes, wrote the song Horizon Riders, and uh, the register had this to say about that song. The song played over the credits is just a bit odd. Well, and so it should be. It's a space shanty, (laughs) and I wanted it to be different. I didn't want the usual quasi-military, you know, get your James Horner. Yeah, I didn't want that. I I wanted it to sound like the the tacky music you hear on the 70s stuff, but I wanted it not to be tacky. I just wanted to evoke that that old documentary feel. (laughs) Well, that's... Yeah, that's possibly the the nicest thing that any or the closest to nicest thing that anybody in a two million following press outlet has had to say about my band or a song that we did. So I, I'll take it. I'll take a bit odd. Well, odd is at least spelt with three letters, not four. And if it was spelt <laughs> with four letters, then I'd be worried. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is a very cool uh, review um, on the register.cu.uk. Moving on to some other news, Dwight. Uh, this I saw something on your Facebook page about Esperance Museum, but you guys were very mysterious about it. Well, there's going to be big celebrations in Esperance on July the 11th, 12th, 13th, thereabouts, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's the 40th anniversary of Skylab impacting in that region of Western Australia. And I've been asked by the Esperance Museum to help them prepare their celebrations, and we are going to show the film there. Um, I'm going to be involved in in getting all the material they need with possible links to to astronauts live via Skype. Um, It's going to be a big deal for a a little country town uh, that's got its claim to fame because Skylab impacted it. it, It's going to be a fun time. And if you can get out to Esperance, uh, I would highly, highly recommend it. I'd love to go. Can you get me a ticket? I can get you a ticket. You have to pay me for it, though. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, that's not what I meant. Okay, moving on. <laughs> what what other events? If you, you've got that coming up, uh, what other events do you have, if anything? Well, we're looking at um, getting um, some screenings happening in the United States for the anniversaries of launch, of the crude launch, of the second mm-hmm. crude launch. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already had the anniversary of Splashdown from SL4, so those guys are taken care of. Um mm-hmm. 
And we just want to get uh, a couple of the, the space venues, you know, interested in showing the film because they're the ideal place to show it because that's where sure. you've got the audience that are actually very much interested in, in watching it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I hope you get some some uh, of those uh, museums and outlets on board. Uh, then I saw that you've been you put out another blog post. You want to tell us what blog post that was? I can't remember what it was. Uh, that was wrote. the what would have become of NASA had Skylab failed. That's right. And That's it's very much an open question where we, we discussed a little bit of it uh, last podcast. We did, didn't we? Episode uh, two. That's right. That's right. And uh, it's still an open debate how deeply NASA would have been affected had they not been able to rescue Skylab. Mm. Um, and a lot of people have the opinion, oh, God, Skylab, couldn't they get anything right on it? And I uh, must admit I was one of them uh, 15 years ago until I started researching it. And the more I learned about Skylab, the more I thought, whoa, this is anything but a failure. This was a success in every sense of the word. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They learned so much. And, and, for example, we were talking to Mark Pastana, who was working at NORAD, um, was watching it come back to Earth. And I said to him, weren't you upset that this beautiful space station was coming back down to Earth and was going to crash and be destroyed? And he said, no, you don't get it. We learned so much from orbital decay and the way it impacted mm. that uh, it, it set the standard of, of how to deal with such a problem because it's not the last time that this is going to happen. And right. uh, that took me by surprise. That was uh, if, yeah. if there was any comment from the whole making of the film that took me by surprise, that was that comment. Yeah, that's interesting because it was, you know, learning from failure, I suppose. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I have one more question to ask you before we go into the actual uh, discussion of the problems, the insurmountable odds uh, that Skylab faced. Uh, Live TV from the Moon is a book that you wrote a while ago, and I see that it, it's, it's been reissued, or, or what's happening with that? It certainly has. It's been revised. It's been reprinted, and it is available now from Apogee Books or on Amazon.com, and it is okay. a book that chronicles the entire development of television by NASA to telecast the moon landings. It okay. starts from Project Mercury, or, or prior to Mercury, actually, the, the beginning of uh, NASA, how they dealt with the developing the cameras, the TV systems, the data transfer that they were going to use to send mm -hmm. live television pictures back from the first step on the moon. Wow, cool. Exciting year for you, Dwight. you got books coming out, you got movies coming out, you got blogs, podcasts. Exactly. I know. Where it's does just it stop? Wow. I don't think it does stop. Oh, okay. So let's get into the actual topic of our, our podcast. The launch of Skylab was, as you said in episode two, was pretty textbook and was pretty, uh, you know, on, on target. What went wrong? Right. About 64 seconds after launch, plus or minus a couple of seconds, um, the micrometeoroid shield, which was supposed to thermally protect the space station and also pr protect it from micrometeoroids, from impacting mm -hmm. it and damaging it, was ripped off due to a design failure uh, okay. where upon reaching Mach 1 at launch, there was an air pocket that formed underneath the shield and essentially blew the thing off the side of the spacecraft. Oh dear. Now, at the same time, that then triggered a whole bunch of uh, things. Whether or not they're related is, is uh, open to debate. The S2 skirt, which was part of the uh, interstage, failed to uh, uh, um, separate properly, 
Okay. And the Skylab was within seconds of, of blowing up. Um, that then, those problems on, on stage separation caused one of the solar panels to be ripped off. And when the micrometeoroid shield ripped off, it also lodged itself into the other good solar panel, which didn't allow it then to deploy when it was placed into orbit. So right. essentially, they launched a dud up into orbit, and there was nothing they mm. could do. Mm. Thankfully, thankfully, there was the design of the Apollo telescope mount, which was at the top part of the the, uh, the space station, which had its own power supply from the windmill shape uh, solar panels. That when you see a picture of Skylab, you'll see it looks like a windmill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they supplied enough power for the station to be controlled from the Earth to to actually power up. Um, but it was a serious problem. And the, when you listen to the, the, the public affairs office announcements, minute by minute, it gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah, it's pretty as disastrous as they come uh, for, for, a, for, for a launch. Well, that was $2.2 million ready to be uh, – $2.2 billion, I'm sorry, uh, ready yeah. to just go down the toilet. It, yeah, uh, yeah. it was serious, serious stuff. And when you watch the interviews of, of the Skylab, uh, the SL2 crew, Pete Conrad, Paul Weitz, and Joe Kerwin, they are very, very concerned. And they were shipped immediately to the Neutral Buoyancy Training Facility, which is – where they work underwater to simulate zero gravity. Right. And they were training around the clock to get uh, uh, an idea of how to save the thing, how to de deploy the solar panel. Right. They um, they were working so much around the clock that Deke Slayton actually came to the facility and said, you guys got to get out now. The backup crew needs to do the work. You need to rest because you need to be fresh when you go up there and save it for real. Wow. Now, um Jack Kinsler, who was working for NASA in Houston, had a wooden model in his office, and he was sitting there pondering, "What? how can we fix this? And he saw that there was a camera port, which was part of the scientific airlock, which they would put uh, certain experiments through to test things on, on the uh, outside in, in space. And he thought, wait a minute, we can use that. We can use that because that is right in the center of where the damage occurred. Yeah. And he came up with the idea of using a parasol to cover the damaged area and act as the thermal protection. So then, but, but before we before we head on head on into that too far down that road, I, I just want to ask one more question about the launch because I've seen you asking certain people on on your Facebook page if they notice something in the footage that that is in the movie. Um, specifically after launch what what is that that you that you think that you could possibly see and that you're asking for people to see if they see it as well right well i got the screen of uh, uh, files of the launch of mm -hmm. all the skylab 16 millimeter footage uh, there was that one particular vantage point that showed the rocket um against a clear sky and i'm like when the hell did this take place because they were telling me that there was no visible uh, um vantage point of the launch from the Kennedy Space Center. Okay. And yet it's as clear as a bell. You can see the rocket between Mode 1 Bravo and Mode 1 Charlie. And uh -huh. that occurs in the time frame where the meteoroid shield should have come off. Okay. Now, I compared it with uh, the other Apollo launches, and it matches time-wise uh, that period of time. And okay. so then I zoomed into the to the rocket itself, which was 
um, like maybe one twentieth of the screen size. So I had to blow it up quite a bit. And when we looked at it, I was just like, hey, there's something moving about where I think the meteoroid shield should be. Now, I asked a whole bunch of people, and they were like, well, if you know how it comes off, it looks like something's going on here. But mm. no one could say 100% yes, that's what it is. Now, I asked a friend of mine, uh, Lane Herman, who is uh, a photographer down at the Cape, and he said, look, that camera looks like it was taken a bit further south than the normal places where these these cameras are located. Okay. And uh, he said, by all rights, if the cloud cover was just generalized over the launch facility, that camera may very well have had an uninterrupted view of the launch, which when right. you look at the film, that's how it looks like. Okay. And wow. so rather than say, look, we've, we definitely see something because we're not sure ourselves, but the, everybody I've showed it to says there is something flapping about there. So okay. I thought we'll put it in the film. We won't make a comment as to what it is. It will we'll show it right when we're talking about the meteoroid shield coming off and let the audience make their own decision whether they're seeing that happen or not. I'm 99% certain it has fallen through the cracks because it was such a, a long-range camera that you don't see the, the rocket so well that no one had actually ever bothered to analyze it properly. And okay. so maybe we discovered something that had fallen through the cracks for the last 45 years. Who knows? That's amazing. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on Team Dwight. I think, uh, I think it's uh, something. <laughs> oh, I think so too. Oh, I think so too. So we know that the shield is damaged. Uh, we know that there are power problems. What what else is going on? That's basically it. They successfully it. placed it into orbit. They yeah. just so that's, couldn't that's do anything. about it. Yeah. And the biggest concern was there was food, there were films, um, everything was yeah. stored in the unmanned uh, workshop to then be visited the next day by the by the crew. Right. That was all thrown into doubt, and they postponed the launch of SL2 so that they could figure out what the hell had happened and if it was mm. possible to fix it. And uh, they had 11 days. There, there was a, a time limit because any longer than 11 days and you're running the risk of damaging all the material that was on board, thus right. rendering the whole project uh, redundant. You know, there was there was no reason to, uh, to go up there. Yeah. And Pete Conrad uh, is well known after walking on the moon to have stated that uh, by far his work on Skylab outdid any sense of pride he had working on, working and walking on the moon. Right, because that was, I guess, relatively easy compared to the challenges that faced the Skylab mission. Yeah, and when, when you listen to the, the EVA between uh, Pete Conrad and Joe Kerwin when they're trying to free the solar panel, it was yeah. a very frustrating spacewalk. We we feature approximately yeah. a minute and a half of, of the exchange between the two. Yeah, I like that. It's it's a, one of my favorite parts of the film, actually. Well, it goes on for for several hours. That that was yeah. just a portion of it. <laughs> um, it's uh, I I have to laugh every time I hear it because the two of them are, are trying desperately to save it, and they're yeah. realizing it isn't as easy as what they thought it would be. Yeah. Is that there is a scene where they're arguing as well, isn't it? Is that the one that yes, you're talking yes, about? Yes, that's the one. Yeah, that that they're having a good old uh, argument about some <laughs> some aspects of it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, so let's get back to the parasol now. So explain how what what happened with the next steps of that. Right, they they came up with several designs and they had to test all of them to see how well they would deploy. And there was one, the twin pole sunshade, that they had to do an EVA outside of the space station to install. 
there were um, several ideas that didn't actually make it, and there was the one of the parasol, and that was the only one that they were able to deploy from inside the spacecraft. Mm-hmm. And that had the big advantage that no matter what, you know, the guys would not have to depressurize, go outside and put themselves at danger or put themselves in danger. So they, they uh, focused all their energy in getting this uh, parasol done. And that was launched with a 30-minute extension of SL2 because they had to get it to the Cape from, uh, fr- from, from where they were building it. And mm-hmm. it launched with the Twin Pole Sunshade as well. Mm-hmm. So once they were on board the space station, they deployed the uh, parasol. It was sticking together because it was compacted into this small cylinder that they had to then feed through this airlock, which was designed for like a boom uh, and nothing bigger. And they had to do it like approximately a meter at a time and slowly pull the thing, uh, push the thing out, extend the umbrella shape, and then pull it back towards the space station once it had fully deployed. And they televised that as well. So it was a very on the seat of your pants type of moment. The networks were covering it. it. It was a big deal. It was very much a big deal. Yeah, and part of the one of the things I love about that parasol is that uh, you send out in one of your newsletters. I think her name was Eileen Baker. Eileen Baker, am I getting that's right, that right? That's right. Yep. Uh, she she was actually the seamstress, and there's quite an iconic picture of her um, putting that together. I can't remember if it's in the film or not, but I've uh, yeah, I it's definitely it it's definitely in, in the film. It's definitely in the film, yeah. and we interviewed her son, uh, Herb, Herb, who who explains how. Uh, she she sewed the thing together. She was one of the best uh, seamstresses there, but yeah. it, it very much he stressed it was a team effort. You know, no one no one ever yeah, took sure, sole sure, sure. claim for it. She was the one sitting at the sewing machine. She had three people helping her, and she is featured on the iconic photograph of putting yeah. the parasol together. Yeah. That's that's amazing, amazing picture. What what do they do nowadays? Do they still have seamstresses work or seamsters? I mean, I don't know what the word would be nowadays, but working on that kind of thing. I guess it's all done by machines. Or, no, no, or they, they still have stuff. the uh, seamstresses there. One they one do? very uh, lovely lady I know, Jean Wright, is part of a group called the Sew Sisters, and uh, she used okay. to do the. Uh, she used to sew the thermal protection for the space shuttle. So it was uh, as recent as wow. the space shuttle. <laughs> All right, I didn't, I didn't realize that. See, these are the things I've learned from your from your movie. So now, you know, the guys did the guys did a good job of fixing it. But even before that, I I uh, didn't realize they had docking problems when they got up to the station. That's one of the things. You know, we were talking to Joe Kerwin, and you heard a little bit about it, and he's going, "No, no, you have no idea how difficult it was." And they tried. They did it eight times or something, right? Yeah, they tried it over and over and over, and they could not get the latches to lock the thing into place. So they had to they had to depressurize the cabin, open the the front hatch, trigger or the not not trigger. They had to cut the wires in order to override the system so the thing would latch on and and dock with with uh, with their spacecraft. And I mean there were there were other contingencies. I'm sure they could have exited the spacecraft in their spacesuits and entered some other way. But uh, that was that was a drama in itself and. Uh, yeah. And Joe says, you know, they would have had to come back home on the second day with nothing done. And that would have been a major embarrassment for, for NASA. Yeah, sure. And it just seems to me that they had so many of these moments where things could have gone gone wrong. Like the launch that went up, they had to design the parasol. They somehow got a, a design that worked. They had to they had problems docking with the station. 
once they got in, then uh, they had multiple EVAs and they realized that fixing the stuff was not so simple. Uh, it's it's amazing and it's surprising that this has not gotten uh, the Hollywood treatment because it already sounds like a Hollywood movie if, if you're listening to this stuff. And I guess Apollo 13 was, you know, there were human lives at stake and it made it more dramatic, I suppose, from that perspective. But for me, the Skylab story is just as good. A lot of people actually have said, well, you know, when is Hollywood going to jump at this? And the nicest thing would be the biggest, the biggest compliment would we could get here with our film is that somebody in Hollywood says, you know, that would make an outstanding movie. Yeah. I I just hope the right people see it because I think that's, uh, that's some, it would be a no brainer. Yeah. If I was a Hollywood producer, I would green light this project right now. Now, but here's the other thing. The problems didn't stop with SL2. No. No, when SL3, the second crew, launched, they were approaching the spacecraft, and then suddenly Owen Garriott looks out the window and he sees what appeared to be the nozzle of the reaction control thruster floating by the window, and they're all looking <laughs> at it going, is our spacecraft falling apart? What the hell is going on here? And that it is turned- never good when you see a nozzle floating past <laughs> your window and you're in space. Exactly. That is, there is no scenario where that is, that is a good thing. Right. Now, they looked out and they they figured out that it was a propellant leak that had actually frozen in the shape of the nozzle and then broke Mm -hmm. free when they they were maneuvering the spacecraft. So they're like, well, okay, something's wrong here. And they figured that they shut down that thruster because there's uh, four of them on the spacecraft. They can operate quite nicely with three. Right. And they docked to to Skylab and uh, several days later, they suddenly get all the, the warning sounds going, and Jack Lausmer is on the film telling us how suddenly they had a major propellant leak that had used up quite a bit, quite a bit of the uh, of the fuel that they were supposed to use to come back to Earth. Oh man! Now this then triggered the ground to get the rescue vehicle in place, which was a Saturn One B with the command module on it. It would right. have been piloted by Vance Brand and Don Lind. They added three extra couches into the command module to cater for the crew that they would have to bring back to Earth. Okay. And in our film, you can see the uh, the live conference between Chris Craft and Alan Bean, where they're discussing the contingency plan. Now they they figured out, and and Vance was actually saying to us, "Yes, we uh, we worked ourselves out of a job." They were so diligent in finding out what the problem was and whether they could override it that they figured out that the spacecraft could actually safely return to Earth without the control thruster that they were dependent on. Uh, they would use the, the, the ones that were working, but the, without the, the, the one that was damaged, they still figured out that they could pilot the thing correctly and they could return to Earth safely. So okay. they had the rescue vehicle there in case, but they weren't required to use it. So uh, what else went wrong, Dwight? Oh, there was a coolant leak for, for SL4. They had to replace it. If they weren't able to fix that system, they would have been out of, uh, you know, a cooling cooling facility for, for the spacecraft. It wasn't so much of a failure or a problem, but so when the fourth, yeah, uh, the yeah. fourth, fourth crew, SL4, went up, they were going to extend the mission from 56 days to 84 days. Now, they didn't have enough food. And because space was very limited on the command module, they decided to give them, and I don't know if you had these when you were growing up in South Africa, space food sticks. No, we didn't. They were like food bars that were, for us kids, I I grew up with them just thinking, oh, well, I'll be a spaceman one day and I'm eating already my space food. (laughs) 
<laughs> and these were a dietary supplement that had all the, the vitamins and stuff you needed in addition to the food you were eating. And that's how they got around extending the mission that long. And Ed Gibson was <laughs> saying to us, okay, they're not bad in themselves, but when you have to eat them every third day and nothing but those things, you start to not like them. It's that, that's the case with anything, basically. Yeah, yeah. There's another thing that I want to talk about, uh, Dwight, that I've read in a few – I think I saw an article a while back about it, and I know that you have some opinions, and it, it comes up as well in the movie, is the the story of the mutiny. Why don't you explain a bit about that and – now, what it actually what it actually was is it was it a was there a mutiny is basically what I'm asking you. Now, if you're lucky, you're not sitting within uh, reaching distance of Emily Carney because she probably oh. would have already uh, whacked you several times over the head. That sounds unpleasant. Yes. Here's Hi, Emily. By the way, <laughs> we want to get you on the show. So, uh, we're, what's going we're, on? We're talking we're about still, the mutiny. One hundred percent want to get Emily Carney on the show. Actually, here's what you can do. You can say when I said mutiny, it had inverted commas around it. <laughs> here we go I, I hope you can hear from my tone so tell me about the mutiny yes there we go and you did the little finger movement too hopefully yeah i did i did it i did it right it started uh not so much the mutiny but the bad blood between the ground and the sl4 crew started because nasa were concerned about space sickness and they were telling the crew look congress is still uncertain about funding for the space shuttle and if people are starting to get sick on long periods up in space then that really throws our whole space shuttle program into jeopardy so they said we want you to take scopdex tablets which are motion sickness tablets um, and you have to do it and now this is a rookie crew and one of the byproducts of taking these tablets is you get dizzy Okay. Now, you can imagine if you're a commander of a mission and it's the first time you've flown in space and you're got all you have all this weight on your shoulders and yeah. you're feeling dizzy and can't concentrate, what are they expecting is going to happen? Yeah, so sure. the crew were trying to say, look, just let us deal with it in our own way and please don't give us the tablets. But it was a mandate. As Ed Gibson says, it was a mandate. They had no choice. So they, they go up, they launch. Everything is uh, according to plan. They uh, break out some food to eat. And he said, you know, he passed Bill Pogue uh, the, the wrapped uh, um, tomato, uh, tomatoes. And about 30 seconds later, he sees the regurgitated tomatoes floating back the other way. <laughs> and of all the people, Bill Pogue. Space vomit. Well, yeah. And, and the thing is, Bill Pogue was part of the, um, the Blue Angels, and they're a formation flying acrobatic team. And of all the people, they called him Iron Guts Pogue because he just never got sick, except okay. the one time where he really shouldn't have gotten sick, they, he got sick. Now, because of the fact that everyone's going, you've got to keep healthy, you can't get sick, they decided, uh, in hindsight, they all said, oh, if we had it, just thought about it differently. Keep it quiet until we've docked. Once we've docked, we'll tell the ground Bill got sick, and then they'll let them figure out a, a course of action to take. Now, yeah. they had this discussion in the command module, and the onboard tape recorder was running that mm -hmm. the crew forgot about. So later that evening, the, the tapes automatically got dumped back down to, uh, to Earth, and there was a secretary sitting at a typewriter typing away what uh, was coming down on these tapes. And she's reading the whole discussion of how they would keep quiet until a later time. So she goes to the managers and says, I think you need to hear this. Now, this started 
a floodgate of problems because okay. the crew was seen as hiding something. Now, right. as, as which I can also understand from from the uh, perspective of what the notes m- must have looked like or must have sounded like. Yeah, yeah, and like both Jerry and, and uh, Ed from from SL Four were saying, they just wanted to get the job done. And they yeah. were concerned about the repercussions of suddenly the guy who is the most stable of the lot, as far as motion sickness goes, suddenly gets sick. Sure. So that's, that's a bad sign. Yeah. So so this then caused the problems down on on the ground. Al Shepard called up on an open channel and reprimanded the crew. And as Ed Gibson said, you know that is not a pleasant thing to hear on an open channel. So no, bad no. blood had been created, and as Ed also says, you know, now suddenly they were the bad guys, right? So they were, and they were under pressure to perform as well as the crew before them. Now, taking into mm. account that they had the space sickness and they were a rookie crew, they had time required to get up to speed. And what they decided to do for one orbit was designate one person to listen to the ground and the other two could get about getting the job done quicker so they wouldn't be disturbed by constant communications. One person would be the the go-between. Now, what happened is all of them assumed the other guy was the one on duty and all of them turned off their comms to the ground. Huh. Right. So, yeah, okay. So, it's looking pretty suspicious now. Right. But that's the thing. You read the uh, transcripts, there's never any indication of a strike. And, you know, the press took hold okay. of it and ran riot with it. And they were saying, okay. you know, Jerry Carr declared that they were holding a mutiny. And that's just not the case. When you read the transcripts, when you listen to the audio, that that just didn't happen. And uh, it's become this mythos that uh, they were the pirates up there and, oh, we're taking control of our space station. Arr. Yeah, and uh, yeah. it's it they, they were overworked and none of them deny the fact that they felt that they were pushed to the limit and they were being micromanaged that every second that they were up there was being teletexted right. up to them. And I was reading one report where they got 60 feet of teletext instructions. And like Ed was saying, uh-huh. we had to read it. We had to make sense of what was being said to us. And then we had to put it into place. And that took time. And they yeah. said, we can't that, operate that's like annoying. this. Yeah, it's it's no. h- how, how? So yeah. they had... A, a as Ed said, a seance from the space station mm. to the ground and said, look, you've got to listen to us. You've got to back off. Now, once they did that, and there's the, the interview with, with uh, Bill Schneider down on, on Earth where mm. one of the reporters says, you know, we're getting reports that the, the crew is less than enthusiastic, and Bill Schneider says, they're your re- reports, not ours. We're very happy with the crew. And right. there is nothing that matches the fact that these guys had a had a mutiny because if they were holding a mutiny, you wouldn't have the head of the, the department turning around three days later and saying this crew is performing admirably. They, it just doesn't no. happen. No, no, it wouldn't be. Right. And then That's in it. early January, Deke Slayton, who was back from Russia because Deke was on the crew for the Apollo-Soyuz test project and he was in Moscow training with the cosmonauts. He came back and he goes online and uh, talks to the crew and he just apologizes for the fact that they were overworking them and commends the crew on the work that they've been doing. And he says, if things keep going the way they're going, well, this will be the best mission we've ever seen. That doesn't match with the fact that they had just held a, a, a mutiny. Yeah. So, and it's quite interesting because even to this day, to this day, 
so basically, I did a search of Skylab mutiny, and the first uh, results are mutiny in space. Why these Skylab astronauts never flew again? The true story behind NASA's 1973 Skylab mutiny. Uh, bizarre story of the mutiny on board a space station. It's still a story to this day. It's just um, it just shows how these things can actually be be propagated and and remain and become part of the true story. Well, like Ed, even if it wasn't true, Ed Gibson said to us every time he goes down to the Kennedy Space Center because he he's regularly there as the astronaut of the day. He said to us every time he goes down, the story gets more and more wild. <laughs> it just doesn't stop growing. No, that's right. I, so, I, but but that's the, they're the closest to space pirates that we've ever had. So I guess that's why. Yeah, no, I don't think they had a mutiny. They're not pirates. And uh, Ed, <laughs> I, I love the SL4 crew. Just remember that. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. I think I'm going to push the the pirate story myself. Maybe Emily will never come on this podcast. Yeah, I just think you've just dug your own grave there, mate. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> hey, woo. Uh. Yeah. So if you ask me, there there was no indication at all of a mutiny on Skylab. Never happened. All right. All right, never happened. I can quote Dwight Stephen Bonietsky as saying the mutiny never happened. That's right, and it's backed up by some pretty strong evidence. Yes. Um, so we are going to be discussing another bit of drama that the Skylab missions had, and that is, of course, the end of Skylab when it came crashing down to Earth. But that's something for another episode further down the line. Excellent. That's what we in marketing call a teaser. Oh, you learn something yeah. new every day. Yeah, you see, <laughs> stick with me, you'll learn marketing terms. Yes. Like podcasts. And stick with me, you might learn how to write a good song. Ah, it will never happen. <laughs> <laughs> if it have, hasn't happened yet, it will never happen. Oh, fair enough. Uh, speaking of the song, we are going to uh, play it to oh, get out of here. Oh, not that odd you, song, no. Yeah, yeah, I need people to listen to it and uh, decide for themselves if the song is, as the register.co.uk called it, a bit odd. Okay, a one, I'll see you next time, a Dwight. two, a one, two, three. Stable.
catch, I'll step outside and watch you from above.